Welcome to episode 202 of Soccer Works, where we look at how soccer works in the U.S. and around the world. Welcome to this Soccer Works Roundtable series live at the bar of the U.S. Soccer AGM. This is a conversation with Sergio Bolioli. Welcome to Soccer Works live, a roundtable edition live at the bar of the U.S. Soccer AGM. We've been doing a, a special series of episodes and talking to people within uh, U.S. Soccer who are here at the U.S. Soccer Annual General Meeting here in Phoenix, Arizona, and I am with Sergio Bolioli with the um, your vice president of Hawaii Soccer right. Association, Correct. and um, is that vice president, are you guys a, a unified state association, adult and youth, or are they separate? No, separate, totally separate. Separate. So you were the adult association? Yeah. With the adult association. So how long have you... Um, been in Hawaii working in in soccer? I've been in Hawaii 32 years, but working with soccer 22 of those years. 22 years. Yeah. What do you do on a, on a regular basis other than just being vice president of Hawaii Adult Soccer? Uh, I run the major island soccer organization known as MISO, and that's basically my full-time job. And what does that include or involve? Uh, uh, is that adults only? Is that youth? It started as adults only. You know, 22 years ago when it started with just strictly adults. Now uh, we have, uh, it started just as a men's league. Because it was called men's island soccer. Now we change it to major island soccer because we included women and we included youth. So we got uh, boys and girls started at 11 years old. The youngest player we got in the league is like 10 years old. The oldest is uh, hitting 70. Oh, wow. So, yeah, so we cover everything. I think in total, of 185 teams altogether. 185 teams, and that includes men's, women's, and youth? Correct. Okay. Um, are they classified in divisions? Yeah. So uh, do you implement um, sporting merit, promotion, and relegation within your leagues? Fully, fully. fully. How uh, on, the, on the adult leagues, uh, the youth who have a... It's sort of like a promotional relegation, but it's not fully because youth clubs, they change yearly. You know, right. there's always right. a, a carousel, you know, of players that they go from one club to another because they don't like the coach or one parent's not happy. So it's hard to do promotional relegation in, in the youth system. But we do have a gold and silver division and based on how they perform in the silver division, they could move up, you know, if the team pretty much remains intact. You know, intact, you know, or um, close enough to it, then they'll most likely be playing the gold the following year. <clears throat> on the adults, we have a, on the open division, we have division one, two, and three, and we have full promotion relegation, you know, on that one. How do the players on the teams, how do they respond to that system? Is it, does it make them more passionate, more engaged? Do they not like it? What, what, are, how do they, Process. Overall, they love it. Overall, they love it. I mean, uh, everybody loves it and they, they love the pride of uh, playing the upper division. Uh, remember, a few years ago, we had a team that uh, got demoted for the first time ever, and the team disbanded because uh, the players they were too proud to go play Division Two. They they fought hard to, to stay in Division One. The the team got relegated, and they say bye bye. 
they, they went and ju jumped into other Division One teams. <laughs> they gave up. They're like, we're not doing yeah. that. Oh, that's too funny. So you've been at this quite a while, but before you got to Hawaii, because you said you've been in Hawaii 32 years. Yeah. Before Hawaii, where 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 were you, where were you where were you born? Where'd you come from? I'm originally from Uruguay. Uruguay. Yeah. So, so tell us, because I I think this country is fascinating with the amount of quality players that the country has produced. Mm -hmm. The population of Uruguay is what? Uh, 3.2 million. 3.2 million, and yet churning out elite world like on the world stage elite players yeah. um, for a country population wise relatively small yeah you know compared to the US which is 300 million plus um, our two neighbors Argentina is 60 plus Brazil is 250 million we squeeze in between both of them and we got more international titles than both of them so <laughs> fair point and and so I used to, just a little side story, I used to have a, a youth club, and in, in my youth club, I had a guy, one of my dads, who's from Uruguay, who was one of my coaches. And uh, so we used to talk a lot about, you know, Uruguayan soccer and... La Garra Charrua. Yeah. <laughs> so what makes Uruguay produce so many quality players what's what is it about the system the culture of Uruguay that is producing that kind of talent on that kind of scale that's been the million dollar question that people have been asking for decades it's something that uh, even for us Uruguayans it's hard to explain uh, people say oh it's something in the water you know <laughs> that's the easy way to say it but uh, I believe it's a combination of things you know uh, is the the culture is one of them, like, ever since you're born, as soon as you're born, usually somebody's first gift is a soccer ball, you know. Um, it's that desire because we're a small nation, we thrive to succeed, to be good at something. We try to be better than everybody else at something. And that's something, you know, is our football, our soccer. Uh, like Obdulio Varela, he was a captain of the Uruguay national team. In 1950, when we won the Maracanazo, he said at best. He got interviewed one time and he said, other countries have their history. We have our football. So Uruguay takes a lot of pride in their football. And their mentality behind it is like, every ball, it's a ball you must win. It's not like a 50-50 ball. It's a 60-40 ball. And kids are, they grow up with that mentality. You know, uh, I mean, that, I think that would be the closest way to to explain it, but doesn't mean that that's actually the, the actual you know reason of why it is. I mean, people have been trying to figure out you know the reason, and people come with different you know ideas and stuff, or you know philosophies why it might be, but it's hard to actually point it out. I mean, they had experts go down there and study our game and. They try to replicate it and they don't get it. They don't get the same success. Right. Maybe it's because we drink mate every day. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> Look, that is something uh, that, that Ralph um, turned me on to uh, when we were coaching together was mate. And um, 
Matter of fact, I was like, next time you're 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 down in Miami, bring me some back, right? Because we couldn't find it where we were. So he always had it sent to him from family or from other places or whatever. So um, down in Uruguay, isn't there a a um, some recognition or you guys famous for like these baby leagues? Is what people have referred to them like baby the, football, baby football, baby football, yeah. And talk, now, talk now, about now it's puppy football. That's for for the for the dads, you know, for the grown ups. Baby football for the little kids. Puppy football for the grown ups. You know. So, so what ages does that start? Uh, I believe baby football. When I started playing, I was I was eight years old. I believe it starts about six. Maybe maybe it's younger now. I mean, it's been a long time since I lived. There. I go I visit there once every year or two, but um, you know I haven't been living there in like almost forty years. Right. But. Uh, you know, but I still keep. I got still got family there, friends. You know, relatives. I feel, visit whenever I get a chance. But yeah, I mean, there, there is the whole structure that start with baby football. That will be a, the most similar case to baby football will be AYSO in the United States. You know, it's uh, free to play, um, but unlike AYSO, they they have a winning mentality, and it's not. Everybody plays. Right. The first team I joined, the coach who put me the last five minutes of the game. I'd be standing next to a coach, put on his shirt, coach, when do I go in? Coach, when, soon, soon, soon. And five minutes left in the game, but okay, now you're going. <laughs> so that, so, so you know. You, that, that competition is bred into you yeah. as a culture from an early age, like right when you start. It's look. You got to earn your spot. I don't care that Correct. you're six years old. Correct. Prove it. Correct. Prove that you belong to be out there. Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Is that what you're saying? Yeah. I mean, here in the United States, that's a heard of. Like a six, seven, eight years old, only playing five minutes and been there the whole game. No, they got to play at least half a game. You know. You know, over there is like, no, you're not good enough. You got to wait and earn your spot. How do the kids take that rejection or that? having to wait do they quit the game or are they still like trying to get better want to want to be better they still involved? try to get better because i mean it's not like they take that rejection because that's the way it is you know and i mean growing up we had also limited substitution it wasn't like in and out once you're out you're done you, you only had i think growing up um, because it was kids i think we had a limit of five substitution instead of three but you know we grew up with that you know, we grew up like, hey, once you're out, you're done. You know, when you go in, make the best of it. Yeah, so it's, you know, pretty much the same scenario that a professional player is put in, you know, in the United States. Because until, until they're pros, there's in and out. You know, even in college, if you come out in the first half, you can only go back in the second half. But you still got in and out, still got multiple substitutions, still got all that. That then they get to the pros and then, oh, only three subs and changes everything they have to adapt to a new game now right over there ever since they started playing the ball it's it's been like you know it's been like that so So being in that environment growing up in that environment being obviously very very familiar with the system with the structure now you've been in the u.s been in hawaii for 32 years soccer in hawaii 22 years would you how would you describe the difference would you say that that the U.S. soccer culture 
is too soft that we don't make it serious enough? Is that you know well, how would you how would you compare the two in that regard? I mean, sometimes it's hard to compare things like that because uh, what works in one country doesn't necessarily work in another country. The sure. cultures are very, very different. You right. Know? Just like what works in Hawaii doesn't necessarily work in California. Because even though they're still, you know, states of the United States, geographically it is so far apart, they're two very different cultures. So there's a lot of good things you know, in the U.S. soccer model, especially like at that young age that everybody gets to play and everybody plays at least half a game, you know, winning is not... So it's good enough for the, you know, for the majority of the players because they get to experience, they get a chance to fall in love with the sport and and somehow progress. But for a competitive environment, for a competitive player, it's kind of holding back a little bit. Right. So that would be the edge that Uruguay has with, you know, the generation of the players coming up, you know, through the system. You right. Know, they already, by the time they get to a, a elite, an elite level, they already have that mentality. They have the hunger, you know, for for victory. So, for me, I'm, I'm a big believer in environment. Environment matters. Mm-hmm. It shapes so much. Uh, I use this analogy a lot. If you want to bake a round cake, don't throw the cake mix in a square pan and throw it in the oven because when you pull it out it's not going to be round it's going to be square <clears throat> so environments matter they shape you and and in in this case culture shapes that environment and it also shapes that person where a player there's there's a level of, of savvy is a word that I, I, I would use and tenacity that I would use yeah. To describe Uruguayan players, that's uh, la garra, the tenacity. Right. That's what garra means. That's why the Uruguayan national teams are known for la garra charrua. Right. The, the, the tenacity of the charrua Indians. That was the largest tribe that we had you know, a long time ago, and that's what the, the teams are known for. In the, in the Uruguayan team, they're known for the tenacity, which is la garra charrua, the, the tenacity of the charruas. You know, the, the fighting spirit. You know, for sure, and. That is something that I think we we lack, quite frankly, in the American game, on especially in the sanctioned game of U.S. soccer. Obviously, in in American soccer, there's a lot of unsanctioned soccer. There are a lot of pockets where there is there are leagues. There's pickup soccer. There are fantastic players that have amazing soccer IQ, amazing soccer savvy, tenacity. They may not be integrated into the U.S. soccer game, and that's something we need to work on. That's something we got to get better at. But, but some, that, you know, if, correct me if I'm wrong, but to the point that you're going, um, I don't believe it's something you, you can teach a player. You cannot teach a player to have the hunger, that tenacity. You can teach him how to stop a ball, control a ball, make a pass, dribble five players, take a shot. You can teach him all that. But you cannot teach him the tenacity, the hunger. And sometimes that's either something that's cultural or it's something that's social. Right. And United States lacks that and will not have that in the near future. You know, for the next few decades, we'll be lacking that. Why do, you th- why do you think that is? The reason that is because, okay, a lot of the players that... Um, that will, if you think about Uruguayan soccer, just like if you think about 
Brazilian soccer, Argentinian soccer. A lot of the players that come to mind are like, wow, great players. Most of them came from poverty. And soccer is a way out, you know, to have a better future, a better life. So for them, being in, in the financial situation that, that they are at, they have the hunger, the desire, the tenacity to come out of there. They'll fight for everything to come out of there. Unfortunately, in U.S. soccer, when I moved here in 1979 to United States, in 1979, uh, people would say, oh, soccer, that's the cheapest sport there is. Oh, you need a pair of shorts and a soccer ball, and you're good to go. You know, you don't have to buy a bat, you don't have to buy a glove, you don't have to buy a helmet. You know, it's cheap. Everybody just goes and plays. And that's how it was back in 79. Youth soccer was just pretty much AYSO level. Like, there was no fees. If there was fees, they were minimal. Very minimal. You know? Now, over the past few decades, soccer has become a middle-class or upper-middle-class sport, which those players, they don't have the hunger because if, if they fail at soccer, they, they still got to have food on their tables. Right. They still got to have mom and dad to take care of them. They, you know, it's like, oh, okay, it was a failure. I didn't make it, but oh, there's other things. And they move on. Right. In some cultures, there's no like, oh, you, you didn't get there, then you stuck where you're at. You still gonna be, you know, check, checking the garbage cans, see if there's anything edible to eat for that day. Right. You know, you still gonna be walking around without socks or shoes, you know, or what? It's like, so that environment does not exist in the United States. I mean, the, the closest analogy I could make with the U.S. sport is, for instance, uh, take for instance uh, the NBA. Where do most of the players come from? They come from the Ivy Leagues? They come from uh, upscale neighborhoods? No. No. A lot of them come from the slums because they, they have this hunger, this desire to get out of there. Right. And most of them, when they get drafted and they get interviewed, the first thing they say, I'm going to buy my, my mama a new house to get her out of the neighborhood. Right. That's one, you know, and, but in soccer, we don't have that. No. There's, it doesn't exist because... Whoever gets drafted, whoever gets picked, they're already in a comfortable financial environment. So they might have a lot of skill, but you put skill in the field on an international competitive level, it's not enough. It's not enough. You need more. You can have, you can have the speed, you can have the skill, you know, the IQ in the soccer field, but if you don't have the hunger, somebody right. with a hunger will outdo you. Right. You know? They're going to give that extra... You know, to, to, to make it a 60-40, like you alluded to exactly. a few minutes ago, 60-40 ball instead of a 50-50 ball, it, that's my ball. You're going to have to take it from me. Um, I, and look, I'm a, I'm a big, massive, huge, whatever descriptive word you want to use, FC Barcelona fan. That's my favorite club in the world. Uh, I, I also like Liverpool in England uh, in the Premier League. All Suarez teams. <laughs> and look, Suarez played uh, for for both clubs, and his one of the things that I think, um, you know, right now he's he's gotten older in his in his career, but a few years ago I considered him to be the, the top number nine in the world, the top striker in the world, and and. The reason why I I felt that was many reasons, but one of the main reasons 
was that grit, that hunger. He, he's so much smarter than people give him credit for, tactically. Um, but one of the things I love about watching him play is the, the work that he does, complementary work yeah. to his teammates. He, I saw it at Liverpool, and that's why, you know, despite the, the 2014 World Cup biting incident and all of the, you know, controversy around that, I felt like when he would, went to Barcelona that, that the culture of Barcelona, uh, the presence of a Messi, the stature of a Messi was going to help him find balance, level, right? Not, not to become timid, not to, to change any part of that, but more where it was the self-control, I'm not gonna lash out in a way that, that hurts my team, right? So channel that emotion and passion back into productive um, actions. And when he got there, that he, he, I, that's why I, that period um, was just amazing to watch because you saw that Uruguayan tenacity that complemented his, the other parts of his game. He's not, you know, his touch as a number nine is not going to be the smoothest touch of any number nine in the world. I mean, not to say that he does have amazing touch and skill. He does, obviously. But there are other players. You know, Messi handles the ball better than he does. When Neymar was there, Neymar had handled the ball better, better than he does. But there was other things that he did, you know, for the team and as a striker that was just, to me, what set him apart. It was not just his on-the-ball work or offensive off-the-ball work, but it was also his off-the-ball work defensively. The hustle, the hunger, the work. I'm going to go. I'm going to give it everything I got. And that's that mentality, it, you're right, is what I see lacking in American soccer. That, that grit, desire, that willingness or hunger to seize the moment right that that things are too comfortable they are they are um there's always this sense of okay you know oh well i'll get them next time rather than no you're never getting that moment back it's now or never it's now or never you're never getting that moment back and when you have that mentality it's it's really hard to finish first because you're always in you've programmed into your mind a willingness to choose defeat because yeah. it's always oh I'll get them next time it's, it's, it's the easier way out right the easier way out it's 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 like procrastination oh I'll, I'll I'll clean up in a minute I'll get to that in a minute I'll I'll check that later same mentality here except you put a soccer ball at their feet it's like ah, you know I'll make that tackle next time ah, you know that kind of thing I I think that's something that's got to change in our culture and in with our environments what what are you seeing in the last 22 years well, can, can in I, Hawaii can, can I go back to Suarez for really yes, quick you know, like, uh, what you were saying about him about, I mean we could spend uh, the rest of our podcast yeah. talking about Suarez in Barcelona no. and I'll be fine but <laughs> no just to ahead. make it really quick um, like you were saying that you saw their transformation on Suarez because now he had a Messi next to him well that that is partly true but uh, I don't know if you're aware of it of the whole Suarez story. 
the what the Swati story the story it's actually a love story. I don't, I'm not sure if you're aware. Yes, I do. So, uh, so when Suarez, but tell our audience, when, when Suarez got to Barcelona, it was kind of like I made it to the moon. I, I I achieved my goal. So there was a little bit of relaxation there from him mentally, not on the soccer field because he still right. went after every ball. Absolutely. But he was at peace with it himself. So for the audience that don't know this, Suarez started dating his wife. You know, at a young age, and he fell in love. Now, uh, one day, his I think girlfriend. He, I think he was 15. She was 14. I think, yeah. if I if I remember correctly. Yeah, around the, uh, forget the exact age. 15 is correct. Yeah. So, one day, um, he got the news that uh, they were moving. Her family was moving to Spain, and that kind of got Suarez heartbroken and. Actually, at the time that she did move, Suarez was like broken into pieces. So he he would show up to practice with Nacional, and he wasn't performing. He was sobbing, and a local Abreu, Sebastian Abreu, went up to him one day and said, "Hey, kid, what's your problem? Are you all depressed because she moved away? If that's what he want, you just gonna mope around, or you gonna do something about it?" And so I looked at him like, what can I do? You know, and right. he said, you want to do something about it? Work your ass up. You know, bust your ball so you get noticed and you get a contract to Europe. That way you'll be closer to her. So Suarez changes his mentality and started working harder. Started getting noticed. Started getting games with the first team in Nacional. Boom, suddenly groaning body. Groaning, yep. So now he went to Europe and he, you know, and he, he took a, a break from Groningen and went to Spain and approached the, the family and said, hey, I just got a pro contract here in Europe. I'm gonna be playing Groningen. You know, I'm all by myself. Could she come live with me? She was only 15 years old. Right. And uh, the family agreed to say, okay, they let her go. And, you know, that's kind of ballsy for a family. like. They right. probably said, oh, this guy got a future, you know, <laughs> let's invest in it, I don't know. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> so then, you know, he tried, his goal was always to go to Barcelona, because that's where her family right. moved to. Right. So, you know, he, he then went, you know, got sold to Ajax, mm -hmm. then he went, made the big move to Liverpool. Right. And I believe that the Biden incident, the World Cup, was because he needed to get out of England. Liverpool would have never sold Suarez. Otherwise, because Suarez had just finished the season with 31 goals and 22 assists. Right. He was way too valuable to let him go. Right. So he had to do something major that made Liverpool get rid of him. And uh, attempted biting the guy. He never beat Kalini. Even Kalini admitted it. He attempted to. The failed attempt biting incident was the last straw for Liverpool. So, okay, we'll have to get rid of you. And then he achieved what he wanted, which was going to Barcelona. Right. So... Uh, like I said, it's a love story. When he got to Barcelona, mentally, now he was at, at peace. Right. You know. Uh, but yeah, having Messi around him also helped a lot. You know, with other things. But. Absolutely. And, and I, the thing I love about Suarez's story is it, it really goes back into the mentality, and that piece is not really talked about a lot when we look at American soccer. Yeah. The, the 
the player, the successful player and their mentality to reach that level. So for him, it was always about the destination of Barcelona. When it, when it was Messi or maybe Ronaldo, um, Cristiano Ronaldo, the current Ronaldo, not the best Ronaldo for the audience. You can hate me later. I don't care. Um, I think their destination wasn't a place. It was a, glory. a, a level. It was glory. It was, you know, uh, uh, glory, eternal glory, right? Um, and But every player to reach that level has a place. They have a destination that they're, that they're chasing. And I think it's part of what spurs them on, you know, to dig deep when they, you know, when that coach goes, what are you going to do about it? Yeah. And then he's like, you know, because I, I would argue based, and I'm glad you, you brought up that story and, and told it to the audience, because I would probably argue that if her family didn't move to Barcelona, we would likely never have seen the Suarez that we see today. I agree. Not to say that he would not have been a professional. But not the same really level. Good, but not that level. Yeah. Because to, ch- to chase that destination, for him, Barcelona, a, a physical place, and that club, the best club in the world, in my opinion, right? This, I'm a fan. Um, argument here. Right. For him to chase that meant he had to pull out of himself to such a level beyond the comfort level of Nacional in, you know, in, in Uruguay or any other club that he might have been, you know, Groningen or Ajax or Liverpool. Not to say he wasn't, wasn't good or great or really, you know, but the best, best version of himself came because he was chasing that. Yeah. Right? Chasing the dream. Chasing the dream. Which I want to use that as a segue into looking at what you guys are doing in Hawaii and and, and looking at the macro of U.S. soccer. Chasing a dream. What dream should U.S. soccer as a federation be chasing? What dream should... The dream that all of us as fans have, see U.S. soccer compete with the elite and beat the elite, you know, achieve that goal, you know, have the men's national team achieve the same goals that the women's have. Right. You know, but, you know, let's not just talk only about the men because the women are losing their edge also. So the women need to step it up as well. Right. To keep being the, you know, because... The rest of the world has caught up to the United States, right? So the dream should be like to have the next Messi, the next Suarez, or comparable players to that, that have the hunger, that have the that skill, that determination, that vision, that shot, right? You know, we're not there right now. That should be the goal. Right. That should be the, you know, the priority. That, you know, that, it's that, like, hey, drives let, our let, let's... Because if you do that, then, you know, the numbers uh, of participants are going to race because everybody's going to have the fantasy of being that player. Everybody's going to want to get on the soccer field 
with the dreams of being that player. Just like when we had a Michael Jordan in basketball. How many, how many kids suddenly start playing basketball because they fantasize about becoming like Michael Jordan? I mean, there's all, there were already plenty of kids, but I'm pretty sure there was an increase of participation because sure. a lot of kids desire to be. So same thing needs to happen in soccer, to be able to reach that elite status, you know, and not be, not insulting any nation or anything, but not be like Mexico is right now, that they've been fighting for decades to get their fifth game. Right, that's been their goal, to get their fifth game in the World Cup. U.S. has already actually achieved that, right? <laughs> right, but it should be a higher goal than getting the fifth game. It should be competing with elite and hanging with the elite. You know, sometimes you win, sometimes you lose. That happens, that's part of the sport. Sure. You have three possible outcomes. Those are two of them. Right, you know, so you got to deal with that. You know, look at Germany. Germany's always on the uh, this past World Cup. You know, I was lucky enough to witness that game live with Korea that they say bye-bye and nobody expected that. So, right. But U.S.'s dream should be of building a culture that will not just be a one-time hit. Because we see many countries that come do really good one World Cup that you don't hear from the uh, but build consistency, right? Not just have one generation of players that, oh, that was a golden generation. Right. You need to establish something. The next generation the should ne be better than yeah. the last. And I tell a lot of people, like, for instance, Winalda, when he told me, you know, when I met with him last year and he was you know, he was running, you know, for, for a presidency, and it's same, same with Steve Gines. They came, they talked to me, they approached me, they asked me for the vote and all that. And I told him, look, if, if you make it there, if you get the spot, do me a favor, don't do like, like it has been happening for decades in the United States, that they they want imitate the European system. You know, yes, European is the glorified place. You know, that's where the money is. That's where the top clubs are in right now. But you got to develop, you know, players to be at that. And if you look at the European system, where do most of the elite players come from? They're coming from Latin America. So try to emulate what's being done in Latin America to develop your bass player. And, and I told them both also, to go more straight to the point, and that's not because I'm from there, go and study how things are being done in Uruguay. Because ever since Tavares came in, came in and took charge of the national teams, he put a process in place. Yeah, there's some people who don't like it that argue this, argue that. You're always gonna get that. You're always gonna get the pros and the cons. Sure. But one thing you cannot deny, that since he's been in charge, we have qualified to every adult World Cup. We have qualified to all the youth World Cup except one in the past 10 years. And we became, this past, uh, this last week, we qualified for Poland in the other 20. And we became the only team in the world to qualify for seven straight under 20 World Cup. And we're talking a country of 3.2 million people. That's right. So. It's not about, oh, Suarez and Cavani, we have a golden generation. Yeah, because we have Suarez, Cavani, Godin, you know, Jose, Jose Maria Jimenez, Muslera. That, that, that is a golden generation. Sure. But we have a line of, of kids in the back that are ready to step in and fill those shoes. Right. We have developed continuity. So, yeah, maybe we might not win the World Cup, maybe, but we will be competing. Sure. And, and that's the important thing. Not everybody, not the best, the best teams don't, don't win the World Cup. Right. I mean, how many times have we seen 
like Brazil in, in 1990. They were in 82. I mean, Brazil 82. Right. But that was one of the best teams. They didn't win. Right. You know, so, but they compete. You need to be there. Right. You need to create something that, hey, you're there, you're fighting for it. And right. that's what the United States should be dreaming for. I, I completely agree. I, I think that the Federation should get away from this idea of making soccer the preeminent sport in America. And not because it's, it's bad, but I would rather them dream bigger dreams. And one of the, the things that I, I talk about a lot is going from making soccer the preeminent sport in America to becoming the greatest soccer country on earth. Is it going to be easy? No. Is it going to be overnight? No. Is it going to take a lot of hard work and challenges and changes, patience? Yes. But if it's something that we aspire to as a country, America has shown over its, over its history, no matter whether it's you know political whether it's in in in, in war whether it's been in, in other endeavors like going to the moon there is this there's something about the american spirit that when we set our minds to something we we stretch ourselves and it it really reminds me of thinking back to suarez he, his pursuit of the moon it was was barcelona it, in in and it was almost as if He kind of had a JFK speech to himself, you know, if I'm, we're, I'm going to go to the moon in the next decade, kind of thing. I'm going to get to Barcelona in my career. That, that is my goal. And yes, I feel like, like Pelé did when he promised his father he was going to win a World Cup for Brazil. Right. Absolutely. And, and I think that when, when a country wraps its, its mind and its heart around that mentality, that goal, that vision, that stretch. That's why I look at a country like Germany. You know, they had the, they had the failure of the Euros in 2000. They said, we're going we're gonna, we're gonna to tear this up. We're going to start over. We're going to rebuild. We're going to figure out how to do this right. And, and we're, we're better than this. Ten years later, you know, they, after they rolled out their plan in 2004, They win the World Cup 2014. Now, granted, they were a bit fortunate because Messi had to play with Higuain, who's terrible in big games, <laughs> and um, should be only um, taking out the trash as a, a trash guy uh, for I the rest of his life. Neymar was injured in the semifinals. Right, right, right. I feel 7-1 regardless. Sure. <laughs> so, but regardless, not, not to take away from Germany, They won, and, and, and it, was, it was a culmination of setting a big goal, a big dream, saying it out loud. The whole world knew they weren't happy. The whole world knew they were rethinking things. The whole world was watching. So you had all of this you know, pressure that was invited on themselves, and, and yet that pressure was the crucible That, that created the diamond, mm -hmm. the gold cup, I mean, the, the World Cup, yeah. you know, victory. They, they, they got the gold nugget. So that's where I would like to see U.S. soccer go and, and see us really get bold in our aspirations and in our dreams 
so that our players are aspiring to to go beyond themselves. It's not just enough to say, oh, I want to play in college or I want to play pro. Like, no, I want to play on the best team in the world. You know, getting players to think that way means that the players change their habits. They change, it changes their, their um, work ethic, changes the amount of time they put in on their, their craft and their game because they're dreaming bigger dreams. And they, and they begin to ask of themselves more than we could ever ask of them from, from outside. And the, the sad part is like the sad or the scary part for the rest of the world that the United States has everything in place, you know, to, to be a power, a world power in that. They have right. everything. I mean, they have, you know, the infrastructure. I mean, they have the fields. They have, you know, the train facilities. They have, you know, uh, the um, nutrition. You know, pretty much anything you need is here. Right. The only thing that's not here is the right decision making and the culture. Right. And when people start making the right decision, you know, steering the, the direction of soccer in the right way and forgetting about oh we have so much money in the bank account forget about it yeah money money is important to but you got it's not the priority of the association first and foremost we're a soccer entity and we should be shoot, shooting for soccer goals not for how much money we're going to put in the bank right and if you're going to put that kind of money in the bank then make sure you have plans on how to invest it for growth of the game you know so Once the United States figures the right track, it's going to be like the Olympics, which all the other countries are playing for second place. Right. So the rest of the world does not want to see the United States wake up because they're the sleeping giants right now. Right. They have everything in play. They have everything they need, except they're sleeping. Right. So, so, what so do we, we don't want the... What do we do me, to wake me, up? Me being from Uruguay, I don't want the giant... I live here, I work with U.S. soccer, but I don't want the giant to wake up because my country might not, might not ever win a World Cup again. Right, <laughs> right. <laughs> what, what does U.S. soccer have to do to wake up? Uh, I don't know if it's my place to say that, but, you know, they, they have to start focusing more into soccer issues and less into financial or political issues. Okay, so, I, I just gonna leave it at that. Right. Know, so, yeah. so when we're when we when you're looking at soccer issues, you're talking about things that directly affect the game itself. Just to clarify for the audience. Well, like right? like like I brought up earlier, uh, United States soccer is missing the whole segment of society that has a hunger, the hunger to right. succeed. Maybe they might not have the skill right now, but you get the hung, you coach, the, you train and coach that hunger. Right. And you polish that, that rough stone into a diamond. Right. Now we're talking about a whole different, you know, right. whole different issue. Right. You know, but different mindset, mentality of players. Exactly. That, that are coming from that, that background. You, you bring a whole section of the population who's right now is not playing soccer because they cannot afford it. Right. They cannot afford soccer. I mean, soccer, has, like I said earlier, is, has become a middle class and upper middle class sport. You know, and the only time you see the lower class playing it, it's an, in, an affiliated or ethnic leagues, because that's where they they can play for free or, or, or very very little and afford to play. But those players usually don't get looked at, right? Because they, they go under radar because they're not part of our system, right? 
and and many of them and 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 I've on many occasions in different parts of the country have gone to matches and watched um, many of these ethnic uh, league matches, you know, Hispanic, Latino, you know, league matches as well. And and you'll see some amazing talent on the field. And they fighting for every and ball. Fighting like their for life every depends ball. on it. Yeah. yeah. And, 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 you know, you'll turn on the national team and you're like, man, that left back I saw last week at, at a... Uh, a match in LA is way better than the kid that's playing on the national team, but for for whatever reason, even though that game was 20 minutes from the U.S. Soccer Training Center, he's not looked at, right? He's not he's he's not getting a look, and that that to me goes back to what what becomes your your emphasis, your goal, your priority as a federation making soccer the preeminent sport in America it, it it's nice becoming the greatest soccer country on earth to me is better because then and if you become the best soccer country in the world it will be the preeminent sport in America it will be the pre <laughs> exactly but become the, but to become the process of becoming the greatest soccer country on earth means you're going to make different decisions yeah right It's not just about bottom line when it when you're looking at finances. It's the bottom line at our players, our development, our clubs, our coaches, um, our referees. You got to try new ways, like got, Einstein said, right? The definition of insanity. Repeat the same. He's doing the same over. thing over and over and expecting same. different results. Exactly. Something's got to change. You got you got to make major changes. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. Well, Sergio, thanks for coming on the show. Earlier, you were you were wanting to ask me something about Hawaii, and we went back to Swat. Oh so, yes, yeah. It's, so with with Hawaii, what what challenges of being kind of isolated? You know, you're not connected to the mainland. Um, what kind of challenges do you guys face in terms of the the leagues and the development out there on the islands? Well, we face a lot of those challenges, you know, because, uh, as you said, we're very isolated. It's the most isolated archipelago in the world. Our closest de destination is a five-hour flight to San Francisco, you know. So anything that we want to do outside of the island is going to cost money. You're talking a lot of money, you know, for, for, for the kids to experience something different that they have in Hawaii. Believe it or not... Uh, Hawaii soccer level is pretty good. It's higher than people think. A lot of people move to Hawaii thinking, ah, everybody's just a surfer. All they know is about coconuts and canoes. I'm going to join a team. And they come and they make up a story. Oh, they play pro, they play semi-pro, and, you know, build themselves up, and then they join the league. And, dude, you don't belong here. You know, people come with that mindset that Hawaii is like, they only know about surfing and stuff. Chill and you know? relax. Exactly. Right. But the level is actually higher than, uh, than people believe. You know, believe. Um, you asked me earlier about the leagues. What I run? Okay, I run, I'm the vice president for the adult, uh, you know, the adult side of, of the, the, the state association. But I also the head guy for U.S. club soccer in Hawaii because uh, my youth league is under U.S. club soccer. So through the U.S. club soccer, we run the PDP, which you're probably familiar with, same similar to ODP. Mm -hmm. <laughs> we have scouts from you know 
from US Cup Soccer come uh, during our stake up uh, to identify players to invite them to the PDP. Now, when we do the PDP camp, we're fortunate enough to have the two directors of the national program, of the PDP program. They are the ones who come to scout players to be invited to the ID2 program. The first year they both came, the men and the women director came, they were like shocked. They're like, how many players can we, are we limited to a number of players? Like, the level is way higher than we expected. We have, the first year they came, we had 24 players invited to the ID2, which represented almost 22% of the participants from the whole West region. Oh wow. 22% of, of the participants were from Hawaii. This past year we had 25 invited. So that tells you something that a little island in the middle of nowhere is it's, it's doing something right. Right. It has what it takes. But yet we are, you know, we have that challenge of seeing what's outside the borders. Because it's too cost effective. You know, for, for us to go anywhere, it, it's going to be expensive. The cheapest thing that we can do is go to California. You know, and get the kids to experience what California soccer has to offer because that's the closest destination. Or maybe cheaper in California would be Nevada because flights to Las Vegas are pretty cheap from Hawaii. For, you know, that's not, not Hawaii's number one destination, so those are the cheapest flights so, to go to Nevada. But the, uh, clubs in the mainland don't have to deal with that because they want something different. They just get in the car, they drive a few hours away, no problem. Right. It's pretty cheap. They don't have to fly five to five and a half hours minimum to see something else. We've been doing, for the past five years, uh, my league, we've been doing a Miso Junior Elite under 12 teams that we take boys, we select boys and girls from around the state and we take them to Japan and give them that experience. I mean, we, it's easier for us to work with a Japan soccer than it is to work with US soccer. A lot of time we get ignored by US soccer, you know, because we're so far away. We're just the little island over there, but Japan, they walk, they walk on us with open arms and we arrange uh, games against uh, some professional academy teams. You know, like we play against the Kashima Antlers. We play against Tokyo FC, the uh, Ardias. We played, you know, uh, the, the Sam Freche from Hiroshima and a few others. You know, Urawa Red. Blah, you know, the list goes on. So every year we go and we play a number of games against them. And now we're trying to expand that program to go to Uruguay and also to go to Europe, but. The experience that the kids get is invaluable because now, like I said, they're restricted to what they can learn in Hawaii because they learn only from each other. Right. I mean, the, the the biggest challenge they have is when they have to travel to another island, which is also expensive because you're talking the flight minimum $150 minimum. Right. You know, usually it's about $200, you know, per passenger for a round trip. You know, so it gets expensive also. You cannot do that every weekend. So whenever there's inter-island competition, that, oh wow, we get to play guys from Maui, they play a little bit different than us. But to go to another country and experience the culture, the soccer culture, how they play, how they train, do everything. A lot of those players come back and that open up their eyes. And they, br they bring, right now over the years, they've been bringing that attitude, that mentality of how they train, you know, to Hawaii that has been, you know, helping the development of players. Right. So, so yeah, we have a lot of, you know, challenges due to your geographical you know, status, but right. uh, 
we have overcome a lot of them, you know, with the, the desire and the love for the sport that the kids have. You know, same thing with the adults. And this past uh, January, for the first time ever, we had a, a women's exhibition professional game. We had the, the Stella Nojima from Japan. They finished third in the Japanese league. They came and they did some, uh, some light training in Hawaii and they asked for an exhibition match. So we put together a women's all-star. The game ended up 1-1. And we were thinking, we're going to get killed. I mean, right. Jap the Japanese league is a, is a high-level right. league. They, they've done things very, very well with the women's uh, development in, in Japan. Sure. Technically, they were worse, way superior. But you reminded remind me of Uruguay. The girls play with so much heart, with so much grit, so much tenacity. They had La Garra Hawaiana. <laughs> right, right. We tied, you know, they were up 1-0. We came back and tied 1-1 to a team that was technically superior than we were. Right. You know, and I love that, you know, telling that story because it tells you people, you know, don't expect that from Hawaii. They just think a little island of paradise, you know, let's go get some Mai Tais over there. Oh, well, you know, enjoy life, it's, you know. That's what I expect, but there's so much more, you know, to Hawaii in the, from the soccer sense, you know, right. that my mission right now is to grow Hawaii soccer and do the best that we can, you know, and create as many programs as possible for the kids and the adults, you know, to keep growing and, and be recognized. Well, keep up the great work. You guys are doing some really cool things out there. Um, and I think, I think one of the, the benefits to your program, and, and I know your league specifically, is also your background, and, and I'm sure that has a, a really good influence there in terms of culture and, and identity. If you, if you look at the country, the federation, U.S. soccer landscape, as, as we kind of wrap up this, this, this show, what is the one thing that you would do different if you were in charge? One thing. You can only pick one. So I'm gonna make you make you think about it. I would put a task force. I would I would mimic what Tavares did in Uruguay when he took over the national team programs. I would put a task force to go around the country and leave no stone unturned. Go and re and recruit players, study players, evaluate players all the way. Doesn't matter if it's AYSO, if it's a Hispanic, non-affiliated league, a Hungarian league, whatever, if they're playing soccer, go and see it. Because maybe you have a you know, diamond in the rough over there that nobody, that nobody will notice, but a good scout will have an eye for that and will recognize us and, hey, this, this tone needs to be brought to the store because we need to polish it, that's a diamond. Right. And that needs to happen. That's, right now it's not happening. It's not happening because the only ones that are being seen are those who can afford to be in the programs that, that identify players. Right. That is, that is so good. And it is a great place to, to wrap up this uh, episode. So thank, thanks for joining us. My pleasure. And uh, hopefully we'll, we'll have you on again very soon. Love to be back. Thank you. Mahalo. Thanks for listening to this SoccerWorks Roundtable series live at the bar of the U.S. Soccer AGM. This has been a conversation with Sergio Bolioli. I'd like to thank Sergio for coming on the show. 
As always, you can learn more about SoccerWorks by visiting wrk.mn forward slash SoccerWorks. Until next time.